everybody, welcome to episode 95 of Literary Disco, Pictures at a Revolution. Today, hot on the heels of this year's Academy Awards, we will discuss a 2008 nonfiction book called Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of a New Hollywood, written by Mark Harris. Harris decided to take the five films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1967, which were Dr. Doolittle, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and describe An the entire life of the films movie. from concept to script to the night of the Academy Awards. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, and already talking, is novelist and critic <laughs> Todd Goldberg. And also joining me is essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi. it's good to see you guys. Well, I guess we don't have to do the episode since Todd already did it. Yeah. Discussion's <laughs> over, right? Wait, which one yeah. did you say sucked? Dr. Doolittle? Oh, that's the Dr. One. Doolittle is fucking horrible. Yeah, never, no, um, I've actually never seen it. Get, guess who's coming to dinner is um, not a good movie. Oh, right? It's a bad movie. Unfortunately. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, I probably don't have a career without the movie Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And The Heat of the Night is, uh, you know, it's a B. It's a solid B. And The Graduate's a great movie. But, uh, but here's, and here's the best part. In reading this book, wasn't the Dr. Doolittle section your favorite sections of the book? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Because so hilarious. such a disaster of a film. Um, well, it, it and it took me a while to get to read the book. Um, yeah. For a, a pretty specific reason, um, <laughs> it's actually it's a little too close to talk about just yet. Mm-hmm. So, Julia, maybe maybe you should start, and then I'll okay. I'll check. All right, in. I'm happy to let me let me set the stage here. So, Ryder had told us about this months. book months ago, months and months ago. We had agreed to read it. We've been experiencing some delays, as you guys may have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so. He tells us the name. Ryder was at a whiskey cheese salami tasting. None of this is at true. a kickball right. game yeah. in Silver Lake. I somehow found this book, and I've been singing its praises for months. And I thought it would be great for us to read in time for the Academy Awards. In fact, before the Academy Awards. Right. And um, but the yeah. copy of the book. Okay. Don't worry. Yeah, that's right. So he we order it. Uh, he we he says, guys, read scenes from a revolution. I found it at whatever pretentious garage sale I was at. And we order it, and it takes so long to come. I think I got the last real copy, but it took Todd so long to get this book in the mail. <laughs> yeah. It was literally a previous year. It, I literally ordered this book. Oh, I think it was. I think yeah. it was last year. Yeah, it was yeah. like December 27, 2015. So it finally comes, and Todd <laughs> right. is like, you know, it's it's a really long book. This book is not fucking around. It's like, I don't know, 500 pages. I got the book one week ago. Yeah, he just got it. No, it's 500 pages long. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, he gets the book, and we've waited so long, and we realize that wow, this book seems like really good. It's really unusual that it was so hard to find. That's so strange. It's even out of print. Uh, It's like my my other thought was, it's not only is it out of print, but if we're reading a book that's out of print, and I, I had to order it from a bookseller in England, so. The, the reason it took us so long to record this episode is that my book had to make the same journey the Pilgrims made, except <laughs> it had to get to the West Coast. So two months, two months. Like, it was like the Mayflower and the Oregon Trail right. in one combination. It, it, was like, it was like Lewis and Clark and Miles Standish and Sakajawea and all that shit 
Okay, Just so it turns book. out there's two titles for this book. <laughs> and I told I told the literary disco team to buy the book Scenes from a Revolution, which is what my copy of this book is called. That he got it But the that turns out to be the English and probably Australian and maybe Canadian <laughs> title. But here in America, it's pictures at a revolution. Right. Yeah. So I was pictures. shocked that Todd was like, the book's out of print. We can't find it anywhere. I was like, wow, yeah. well, then we're going to bring it back. And turns out we're just jumping on a bandwagon with a different title. Yeah, it turns out it's a classic. It's it's literally one of the greatest books of American <laughs> well film deserved. study. We can all say that this book is a must-read oh, for our yeah. listeners. Yes. Any of our listeners who uh, has any interest in film, uh, this is this is one of the best books on film I've ever read. Yeah. Um, I've talked about Easy Riders Raging Bulls before on, on this podcast, and, and I would say that this is... Um, you know, this is way more detailed and not as, as like, entertaining. Easy Riders Raging Bulls you can read in, like, an afternoon. It's just such a breezy book. But I feel like this book does a much better job of uh, representing what was going on culturally, you know, inside the film industry and outside the film industry and what those differences are. Uh, well, I don't know. What, what did you guys think of the book? Well, I, I agree with all that. I, you know what I was thinking about, and it's sort of a silly comparison, but it's... I think it's apt for at least for our listeners. It's it's sort of like the devil in the white city of American cinema. Yeah. Like you find out that all of this stuff that really is still at the forefront of discussion today, and we can get to that about the actual awards ceremony, the Academy Awards in 1968, compared to the Academy Awards ceremony in 2016, which have some striking similarities. Amazing. Uh, yeah, it turned out to uh, be <laughs> so timely to be reading. <laughs> timely and awful. Um, yeah. But... There was a review that I read of uh, of this book online this afternoon. After I was trying to figure out why this is considered an American classic, only to find out it is considered an American classic, is that these books like this are typically either um, about what great fun it is to make a movie or about what a horror it is to make a movie, and not all those things at, at once. This book is about everything. It's about the horror of it. It's about the folly of it. It's about the cultural significance. It's about the outsized egos, the crazy money, the, the trying to get a chimpanzee to cook an egg. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, it, it's got a little bit of everything, but it also, I think, reveals um, the importance culturally and socially that films can have and the tin ear that films can have culturally and socially at the same time, right. which I think yeah. is pretty Pretty interesting. And that they all coexisted in this year. Yeah. That's the remarkable part. Yeah. So just yeah. in case our, our listeners don't know the different movies that he decided to, fit, to talk about, Dr. Doolittle is a huge musical with a bunch of talking animals. And it was sort of at the tail end of a of a tradition uh, uh, called like the roadshow tradition, which was had been, been very popular with Sound of Music and a couple other films in that ilk that were big, big musicals, long musicals, epic stories. And Dr. Doolittle was sort of the uh, studio's attempt to do that again, but it completely flopped um, and yet was still nominated for an Academy Award. And then you had something like Bonnie and Clyde, which was basically a, you know, a, a pet project of a few people that was trying to imitate what was happening in foreign countries, especially the French New Wave, uh, in an American Hollywood context and struggling constantly to you know, stake an artistic claim and ended up becoming this huge cultural touchstone for what was happening with youth culture. Then you had Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night, which were both films that starred Sidney Poitier and dealt very directly with racial issues. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is about an interracial couple coming to meet the, the uh, white woman's family for the first time to get her permission to marry. 
and In the Heat of the Night is a, a hard-boiled detective story set in the South where a black detective, played by Sidney Poitier, goes down to the South to solve a crime. Um, what did I miss? Uh, oh, The, the graduate, graduate. Which, yeah. if you don't know what The Graduate is, then you, why are we having this conversation? Right. No. Uh, the oh, Graduate is, uh, <laughs> is, was an adaptation of a novel by Charles Webb that had come out in 1963, which had been a mild hit as a book. I don't think it was a huge no, hit it was as a book. No, it was a failure as a book. It was a failure as a book. Okay. and uh, But it was uh, Mike Nichols, who had been a great stage director and comedian and had made the who, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf adaptation a couple years before. It was his big... Uh, breakout hit, um, which was a, a huge commercial success and then very divided uh, critically. But uh, so really, if you if you want to oversimplify it, you have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and uh, Dr. Doolittle sort of representing an older Hollywood sensibility in the heat of the night, kind of yep. squarely in the middle. And then Bonnie and Clyde and uh, The Graduate representing the youth culture and a, a newer sensibility in American cinema. So it's a, it's a fascinating moment because what ended up happening, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, so I don't want to belabor the point, but what ended up happening throughout the, the rest of the 60s and then in throughout the 70s is considered now a, a, a golden age of Hollywood, a, mm-hmm. a new golden age when filmmakers really cut loose. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, uh, censorships had, had been stripped away. Right in the year that these movies came out. 1967 was a, a watershed year for uh, the, the end of the Hayes Code, which was the code that had been uh, preventing nudity and swearing and violence in films. Um, anyway, oh, so that's yeah, the sort of the code. The code was so fascinating to me. I absolutely love it. I mean, all that... All that stuff, all that Hollywood stuff. I mean, unlike you guys, I'm a layman. I'm a regular person. <laughs> layman Julia. <laughs> I'm just bricklayer Julia. So yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know any of this, which is crazy. Oh, they're huge. Yeah. The code was just like there's so many rules. They were so strict. Um, there are so many great examples of oh, them. Yeah. So yeah. like, for example, there was a code against not only against showing crime and showing violence, but that you couldn't even show sympathy towards criminals. I mean, we don't even think of sympathetic criminals is unusual in the way that we see our movies now. I mean, it's like, I I can't imagine um, any of the movies that I love uh, existing if this code had not been lifted and certain kinds of violence. And of course, like sex and pregnancy. I just, this book had so many fantastic details and like, you know, if it hadn't been for the code breaking, we would have had just chimps making eggs forever. I mean, <laughs> that would have been all our movies ever were. And, you know, it took movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate to really push the boundaries and change exactly what we think of cinema now. Well, you know, the, the thing about the, the code also, um, so not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, we screened at UCR a movie called Midnight Mary that starred Loretta Young that was a pre-code movie. It was a pre-code gangster movie. And it was, there was sex, there was prostitution, there was wanton physical violence, there was men beating men, there was men beating women. It, Wait, it, so it was, it was from the 30s? Then? Yeah, that... yeah, it was a pre, oh, okay, pre-code yeah. film, it was a William Wellman film. Um, and we brought out uh, Loretta Young's um, son and uh, his wife, who are, are doing a lot of stuff with some of her pre-code films, and William Wellman's son, um, who's also a director in his own right. And they were talking about, you know, making movies pre-code and then that shift after the Hayes Code where all these films that had already occurred, it was like, 
it, it, I mean, it's basically prohibition. You know, yeah. they tried to close yeah. Yeah. the door after the, the horse had run out. Um, but it lasted for another, essentially, 40 years. Um, right. So Dr. Doolittle is a great example of what the code gave us, which is crap. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> But I also feel like it's, you know, I mean, obviously, like the, the, the thing that we were referencing earlier about the parallels to the Academy Awards uh, this year were, were the racial tension and, and the fact that, that 67 was seen as this moment, you know, where film in the heat of the night, which ended up winning, was awarded for, rewarded for uh, addressing racial relations head on. And then okay, here we are 40 years later uh, doing the exact same, you know, still having the exact same conversation about whether the Academy should be more inclusive or whether Hollywood is inclusive and, you know, and, and, and it's a different conversation, but it still seems like it's hitting on the same, a lot of the same issues. So that there's that, but then there's also what you just said, Todd, which I think is fascinating, which is Hollywood studios are still producing crappy, big budget movies (laughs) that a lot of people see that, you know, get nominated for awards or don't. Um, and, that, that I, I mean, there's so much of this book that is still relevant. Um, and in oh, fact, yeah, I feel like the book, the book was written in 2008. And in some ways, I think it, you know, it was at a time when the, the blockbuster and the studio machine was just sort of finding its newest niche of crap, which has turned out to be superhero <laughs> movies, you know, or, you know, at that time, it was like the, 2008 was really like at the peak of studios realizing everything had to be a franchise right. that you could no longer just have a one-off great movie. Right. You could, you had to have an entire series of movies so you could sell toys to kids and make sure that they get their happy meal toy and you know, whatever. And I think that now we are in a time that is again, once again, dominated by bloated, gigantic films yep. that are really vapid and, and don't have much to say and, 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 a, and are aimed at children the way that Dr. Doolittle was right. yes, and not exactly. aimed at, um, an adult sensibility or, or really it's not even about adult versus childhood, which it's, it's also about being so safe and not offending everybody or just trying to be as mass appealing as possible, as opposed to something like the graduate or, you know, pick your contemporary movie that, that really stakes a claim on, um, something culturally but, is, is engaging. But even in 2008 though, I mean, the best picture in 2008, I just have to go look it up was no country for old men, mm. which mm-hmm. is, you know, I think, more closely related to Bonnie and Clyde, you know, with sort of a nihilistic view of human violence and the banality of evil and all that sort of thing than it is to, um, you know, to Dr. Doolittle or something, you know? Right. I'm sorry, Julia. And Spotlight won this year, which, you know, clearly is a a, um, political, politically driven or culturally engaging film. Totally. But yeah, I mean, like, No Country for Old Men is such a good example of, you know, a great original movie. Um, And I just feel like so many of the movies we're getting now, and I know I sound like really crotchety and old, but like they're based on books or they're huge franchises. And they just, you know, they're just recycling the same material over and over. And, you know, The Graduate, while it was based on a novel, you know, that was very original work. Bonnie and Clyde was very heavily adapted from history, big leaps were made. And, you know, I get nostalgic, maybe inappropriately, for those uh, old original works, you know? Well, Spotlight isn't. Spotlight's an original screenplay. Yeah, that's true. Well, but it's adapted. I mean, it's based on the true story, though. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
but yeah. And it's based on their reporting, obviously. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's it's hard to it's hard to take all of this like same regurgitated content over and over and over uh, again. <laughs> on a book also. Well, you know, I I, I revel in the sort of um, in in books like this on the things that didn't happen, like Truffaut or uh, uh, Jean Luc Godard possibly being the directors of Bonnie and Clyde. Two things right. I did not know about, and two things that would have made that movie entirely different. Um, mm-hmm. But also the, I mean, as Ryder knows well, you, when you go into a meeting to talk about having something big made. It's a lot of weird people and a lot of big egos who say a lot of weird shit to each other. And to have Jean-Luc Godard get angry about meteorology and start out of a meeting because <laughs> he wanted to shoot Bonnie and Clyde in New Jersey in the winter. Insane. Insane. <sighs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean there, there's so much of this book that is just fun to read about you know, the disasters of film production right. and, and, and how arbitrary so many decisions are that end up becoming legendary, right. you know? And, um, I mean, The Graduate is, is one of the most famous because, of course, Robert Redford was sort of the model for Benjamin Braddock. Like, the idea of this waspy, white, accomplished, you know, track star, uh, valedictorian, and then the fact that they completely, basically rewrote the book by casting Dustin Hoffman and how successful that is, mm-hmm. how much that works. And Anne Bancroft, you know, two Jewish people in a story that, or in a, in a book that was originally, you know, void of Jews. Um, and <laughs> Which is also. Awesome. It ends up becoming such a different story and such a wonderful, wonderfully different story. Um, but that, you know, and, and the fact that that wasn't really even conscious uh, in the book, I thought, I didn't know that. I thought that that was always sort of a conscious choice. But the fact that Mike Nichols admits later that 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 was a reflection of his own sense of alienation that the only way that he could relate to benjamin's alienation was by casting somebody who for him, you know represented his own ethnic alienation right that was bad yeah that's so cool or, or what about that um it, for i uh, guess who's coming to dinner they originally wanted ronald reagan not Crazy. spencer tracy right. to be the father and if you haven't seen guess who's coming to dinner ronald reagan would actually be perfect in the role as a uh a person who's supposed to have all these liberal beliefs but doesn't know how to talk around a black person. Uh, <laughs> turned out to be totally true later in life. Um. But it's so much fun. I mean, for me, like, reading a book like this, what's so fun is about filmmaking is that um, you have, you know, it's a collective art form, so it's, it's, you have to convince so many people uh, every step of the way. To, you know, you have to convince somebody to write the script or, you know, once you've written the script, you have to convince somebody to direct it. Then you have to convince somebody to give you millions of dollars. Right. You know, in the case of Dr. Doolittle, 15 million, which at the time, you know, I mean, what's that equivalent to? Oh, I think they said 190 million right. is what the equivalent of Dr. Doolittle's budget would be today. Um, you have to convince so many, but then while you're making the project, you have to constantly be, you know, convincing an entire group of people that what you're making is good or that the choices you are making collectively as a group are correct and um even the answer to that question what is correct or incorrect um what you know how do you determine that by how much money you make do you determine that by whether you get nominated for an academy award do you and you know all of these films have different answers to those questions and all of the people within the process of making the film have different answers to those questions and um i just love that sense of you know because it's so easy every year to watch the Academy Awards and be like, oh yeah, well, well that clearly was the best movie yeah. won the Academy Award. And it's like, but that's just a group of 
academy members. This oh, is a group of filmmakers, so, yeah. people that are accomplished craftspeople in the industry making a decision. Um, you know, and then there's there's different awards for different. I don't know. I just I love all that stuff, and I love sort of upending the way because I think the cultural narrative so often feels fatalistic or determined. You know, we have this cultural narrative that we always tell ourselves like well the best movies get nominated and you know the best movies usually do make their money and it's just not true like a lot of amazing films never get finished a lot of amazing films fall you know do get finished and don't get noticed or a lot of horrible films get way overpraised and i love reading something that's this in depth um that's why you know well, the title, Scenes from a Revolution, but I guess Pictures from a Revolution <laughs> speaks maybe more to this point. I love that the, the granular level, like when you get down to the details, it changes, like it's so easy to buy into the narrative of like, the 60s changed everything in American cinema. Yeah. And we just like, wow. But the truth is, there was so much old Hollywood intermingled with the new Hollywood and there was so much of a relationship there and when you break it into this granular level like this book does you get to see those portraits of like the party where Truffaut and Godard are there with so-and-so and you know it's like all these crazy scenes that you're like oh this actually this wasn't it, this wasn't like an awareness that people had like oh some, the times they are a change in aren't they you know it's like no people you you think your old guard way works are you the only way you can get your new uh, revolutionary film financed is by convincing the 75 year old head of a studio that it's not revolutionary yeah. you know it's like this weird i don't know i love yeah. it i love it for that reason and it's like you We're know living it right yeah it's yeah it's, we don't know history until we're in it which is something i'm so obsessed with right now is you know are we in this our own cultural revolution right now are we seeing this change in politics and racial equality and like you know we could have oscar's so white you think about it that could have happened right in the time frame of this book it could have been any could take a place yeah. it could take a place five nights ago right this book could have <laughs> taken place five nights ago right it's, nothing has changed really <laughs> you know um well I was, I was just gonna say that so uh, the voting block of the academy right now is 91 percent white and 76 percent male so you know the 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 films that get nominated and the awards that are given out it's amazing anyone that any actor who's not a man or anyone who's not a man doesn't win all the awards and i'm not saying that there's that men always are going to vote for men or white people always vote for white people but it turns out at least in the academy that it seems to be a prevailing um prevailing thing so that Sidney Poitier had won the Academy Award in 63 I think it was um, and then was nominated again in 67 and then did not have another significant role in a film basically for the rest of his career Um, and never got nominated again I don't believe for an Academy Award because he didn't have any uh, great significant roles afterward Um, and he was one of the great actors of his generation Um, there, I think it speaks to an institutional racism that, statistically speaking, bears fruit. Like we can talk about, um, we can talk about. Oh, you know, it's it's just this time or that time where things bad things have happened or people have been disregarded. But if the same thing has happened for seventy five years in a in one industry, that's what it is. It's, it's not an aberration. Um, and so yeah. you know, seeing Chris Rock up there this time talking about these things that Bob Hope mocked 40 years ago, but the situation is the same. 
it was really disheartening. You know, it was really disheartening. Well, it's a, it's a it's an industry whose job is representation, right? I mean, that's that's what we do. We put stories and people up there, and we we say these are these are our cultural narratives that matter. These are the ones that that count, and that we're going to give an award to. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the color of a person's skin can't help but play a huge part of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I came away from this book being like. I mean, obviously, Sidney Poitier, I've always respected. But now, after reading this book, I'm like, what a what an amazing man. Like, the way that he walked this fine line. I mean, here he was in the middle of the civil rights era, finding himself the, really the first black American movie star. And, and the mm-hmm. well, the first black movie star. And, um, and how to walk that line, like, which parts he chose. You know, the, the, what he... What he had to weigh to make those decisions is so different from what any white actor would ever have to weigh to make those kinds of decisions. Like, do I play uh, a character that, um, you know, is too sexualized and therefore too threatening and therefore will, you know, backlash against me? Um, or do I play a character that's too neutered and too perfect because I have to represent, you know, the good Negro to a 1960s Southern audience that won't go see my movies otherwise. Um, I mean, those kinds of choices and the fact that he was, you know, an active part of the civil rights discussion because he was friends with Belafonte, who was, you know, right in there with Martin Luther King and, and they were having, and, and then of course this was the year that King died. Like it all just, right. King. so yeah. yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. died three days before the Academy Awards in 1967. So they ended up postponing the right. awards in honor of him. Um, yeah, but but we still haven't settled these issues. I mean, we're still debating pretty much the same thing. I mean, now it's it's much less an issue of just representation. We're actually talking about inclu- in- inclusivity within the industry. And we I think we finally you know recognize that behind the camera, there are just not enough women or people of color. It's pretty... Sad. Well, there's this, there's this, uh, frankly shocking, and maybe it shouldn't be shocking moment um, in the book when they're talking about uh, the casting of guests who's coming to dinner. Um, this is chapter twenty one in the British version, um, where Catherine Hepburn says, "I must say that I haven't known any colored person particularly well. I've never had one as a friend." Somewhat, uh, and then she goes on to say later on. Um, I can't consider Sidney as a Negro. He's not black. He's not white. He's nothing at all as far as color is concerned. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and and she wasn't saying that in an all-inclusive, um, you know, way. She yeah. was saying that. It's crazy. I mean, <laughs> this is why Black Lives Matter movement is important. Um, it's because colorblindness does not work. Uh, we we can't, you know, whitewash, for lack of a better word, the right. the life and the experiences of people of color, whether it's, you know, black actors or Asian American actors or Hispanic American actors. I mean, it's just like, it's completely crazy. And it's crazy and frustrating that it feels like we've made no progress in the last 50 years, 50 years. It's so nuts. Um, why can't we solve this? Why can't we be more inclusive? Um, and to think that an actor had to go through this, you know, so much, it's just, it's so painful to read about. And to, to think that, you know, Sidney Poitier barely made any more movies and he was still so young after that. I mean, how old was he? 
He was in his 30s, yeah. Yeah, and that's basically the last we heard of him, this great, incredible actor. Mm-hmm. And right. how can that how can that be? You know what I mean? So so listeners are aware, uh, it was Super Tuesday yesterday, and I don't know about my colleagues here, but uh, I couldn't even take joy in my favorite candidate winning all of her states. I was just sitting there screaming at the rest of America. Uh, it was a... It was a difficult night, but it, it, it shows sort of the redemptive power of cinema in, in some ways, because, you know, when we look at this book, um, and so the eventual winner of the Academy Award was In the Heat of the Night um, in 1968, which I, I think everyone would agree who's seen all of the movies was not the best movie. Um, it was Bonnie and Clyde. But as I think this year was Spotlight, um, you know, the Academy at that time, sensed a moment in time where the correct film to pick as best picture was one that was dealing with race relations in America. Um, I, I think, I mean, personally, I think Spotlight was the best film of the year. But my concern this year was that it wouldn't win and they'd instead give the, the best picture to The Revenant because it was a challenging movie to physically make versus an important story to tell. Um, and somehow the Academy got it right. I don't know how. Um, but maybe it's just the Academy saying, oh, you know what, this is an important time to look at the death of journalism and that uh, Roman Catholic priests were raping little children. Yeah, who knows? Or it was just a great movie. I mean, well, that, yeah, that's, it was an that's awesome movie. always these questions when you look at the Best Picture nominees. Yeah, I mean, it was an awesome movie, but it took on a really good white people issue of, you know, pedophile priests. <laughs> we, you know, that's... <laughs> That's an issue we're comfortable with. But I mean, there were so many there was I was really positively surprised by some of the choices this year. I love Spotlight um, and I love Room. Mm -hmm. And there was there was a lot of good ones. They just weren't inclusive um, in a way that made any sense. Um, But that's what the, you know, X-Men Academy voters (laughs) picked. (laughs) What if it was the X-Men Academy? Yeah, what if it is? What if they're the ones making the choice? Who knows, guys? Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have seen, like, some people have posted their how they voted, like, some Academy members. I, I actually didn't see this, but my brother was telling me about it. They they posted a, a, a photograph of their filled-out vote, voting card, and it was like, didn't see it, so they mm-hmm. just couldn't vote for it. And it's like, that's... Come on, take it more seriously than that. So they just vote for the people they know or the names that they, you know, I mean, it's like anything else. It's just, it's just a group of people. And it's just a group of people trying to hold on to their cultural authority. You know, I mean, that's all it is. It's just a, you know, they feel important because they have accomplished something within the film industry at one point. But that's the point is it's a self-serving group, right? Like they're going to reward things that remind them of the stuff that they made or that they want to make. And so, of course, if you have 91% white, you're going to keep recycling, you know, white characters or movies that celebrate stories that speak to a white life. Like, you're not, you're not going to care. You know, the fact that, like, Creed, Sylvester Stallone is the only person nominated. But so, you know, or Straight Outta Compton, you you nominate the white writers. Well, Straight Outta Compton is not a great movie. I I mean, I enjoyed it, but... I thought it was a good movie. It was a good movie, it but it's a not a great good movie. movie. And I thought the acting was really good. But I think all those actors yes. deserved some recognition. Um, and, you know, and, and the fact that they not I thought one the guy them, who played, really? uh, like, the guy who played just... Dre was really good. Um, whose name I can't recall. Um, 
But I don't even think the you know that movie didn't really even enter the conversation. Well, it was just like you know, and I, well, I also thought it was really well directed. I actually thought the writing was the worst part about the movie. Well, yeah, because the second half of the film was about contract law. It was like that. Um, right. It was like that, uh, that um, what's it called book we read? Uh, the Nancy Drew book that was all right. about probate law. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, yeah, I just compared Straight Outta Compton to a Nancy Drew novel about probate law. Um, but so here's the interesting thing, though. So we did this uh, Academy Awards show at UC Riverside um, where we, uh, we pick, uh, there's a panel of people and we talk about the winners, but we also put out a poll and we pull the people that are attending and there's 400 people that come out. We put it out to all of our graduate students and alums. That's another couple hundred people. And we put it out to the community as well. And and it's for the top eight categories. So all the acting categories, all the writing categories, directing best picture. Yeah. And the only thing that was different is that the only winner that was not predicted was best supporting actor. But Sylvester Stallone was selected by 26.2% of our voters. So he was basically the Marco Rubio of Best Supporting Actor nominees. Right. And then and then it was, you know, 20% each for, for everybody else. Um, so it... it the so wait, everybody vo- else, it fell on, on exactly the same lines? Like best just, just about, yeah. Wow. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, oh, for the winners, yeah. So, so for instance, for Best Screenplay, uh, 49% of the vote was for The Big Short. It won. Best Screenplay, Spotlight got 57% of the vote. All mm-hmm. the way down... The line for every one of the top categories um with only the best supporting actor not going to the one that was predicted but it was you know within two percent for everybody hmm. um so in that way you know maybe the academy and the american public are in Actually line reflective or, of each other right yeah or it's just people that read the same articles in the la times every day and, and make their judgments right. based on what they think will win right so, who knows well, that's interesting because it makes it out. It makes the Academy Awards out to be more just a sort of popularity contest, I guess. You know, like right. once the nominees are selected, it's just. But the nominees are only selected um, from the Academy members within um, their area of expertise. So, in other words, right. if I became an Academy member for being a director. I would only be able to help nominate the films for directing, or you know, I think they all vote but, best. But every. But, yeah, they all vote on Best Picture, right. but actors have the largest block because they are, there's more of them. Oh, actors. Right. So, but presumably being nominated, I mean, that's really, I think, the great honor, you know, because that's people within your, end, and just like within the different guilds too, like getting nominated for a SAG mm-hmm. award, getting nominated for a Director's Guild award, like those are, I think, the most honorable sort of sought after nominations because it's respect from your peers you know or people that work within your right. craft or your heroes who also work within your craft either way it's it, however you look at it that seems worthwhile to me in terms of louding you know but but why we air the academy awards i don't know it's just this weird horse race that we all participate in as a culture um and and then you know which i, I guess is great because ultimately it opens it up to conversations like we're having and like has been had for mm-hmm. the last few months about Oscars so white. I mean, that's a very valuable conversation that you can feel reverberating throughout the industry. I mean, the conversations about diversity that even I've been a part of, like I am in these rooms having conversations about representation and, and diversity and, you know, in a situation where we can hire somebody or not hire somebody or choose to do a certain joke or not do a certain joke. 
you got to play all that you know you have to take all that into consideration and it's it's a really it's it's a different time it's a really different time um but yeah i mean yeah, the fact that they were already having those conversations in 1967 that we're still having them, maybe it's not a different time. Right. Well, the thing is... <laughs> but in the, well, like, in the 90s, you know, I was on a TV show where I was part of an interracial relationship, and it was a big discussion back then as far as, like, are we going to address this? And we decided to not ever address it, to not make it an issue, which was one kind of weird choice, you know? And on some ways, you could say that that was great in that it just you know was idealistic in that it carved the way for a new generation of children because it was essentially a children's show to not see race but then on the flip side it completely like you were saying julia you know dis uh, disenfranchises the uh, 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 the possibility of like um a black girl not being recognized for the fact that her experience might be different and you know here is a black woman or a black girl a teenager on the show in a relationship and no one's acknowledging the fact that she's different or that she might have a different experience than the other white people in that same show. Like that also seems somewhat disingenuous and you know, its own weird way, non-inclusive. So it was a debate that we had. I mean, we actually talked about it and the writers brought yeah. it up, but, and frankly, we didn't have, we had one black writer on our show, one black woman writer. And the only reason we had that black woman writer was because we had cast a black woman to play my girlfriend and so um mm. in a weird way it was like you know it was it, it worked for the best in the sense that because they had decided to cast trina mcgee davis as my girlfriend they had to hire a black writer because otherwise it was going to be a bunch of white dudes trying to write for a black female character and they were terrified they didn't know how to do that um so mm. in a, you know it started as an act of tokenism and then it moved beyond an act of tokenism into what you know a pretty it, it did become an nicely inclusive, but I think we we probably could have addressed the issue. Um, you know, if it was my show, if I had been yeah. writing it, I probably would have wanted to address it more head on because I think it's that addressing. But <laughs> I mean, what you're just saying right now, writer, is the reason why books get written. Yeah. Because, you know, you look at the show you're on, and in most people's eyes, it's a fun 30 minute show that was on when we were kids, and you don't realize that it's a show made by adults who have these issues that are thinking about these things that are having these dramatic things occur to them. And then there's all that internal strife that's going on around it. So that even a sitcom for kids is filled with the larger cultural problems and issues facing the world. I mean, obviously it's true at any workplace, but particularly- But it's representation. That's what I was saying before. Yeah. You know, we're in yeah. an industry where we are we are put up on a pedestal. I mean, we're putting ourselves on a pedestal. We're saying, we are right. worth you watching. We are trying to entertain you. Watch this. Instead of talking to your family or your friend right now, right. take 20 minutes and, and watch us talking to each other. You know, and so it's a heightened, right. it's a, you know, we're, we, there's, there is idealism. There's, there's hope. There's something wrapped up in just the very process of filming or, you know, making TV shows or whatever. There's, there's a dream element. There's a hope in there. There's something, right. um, and, or a responsibility maybe. I don't know. I mean, everybody has their own answers to these questions, but it's something you have to acknowledge that you are putting yourself out there. You know, you're standing naked on the stage in some capacity. So however you want to show up, it's like, it's up to you. Um, and it, you know, and for, for me, it was interesting because I was always just an actor. Granted, I was an actor who, because I'd been on the show for about four or five years, by the time they decided to cast my girlfriend, I did have input. They asked me, um, but all they asked me at first was, we want to have an ethnic girlfriend for you. We don't know 
we, you know, they just knew that our show was very white because yeah. we only had white. And they were like, this isn't really fair because we have, you know, we follow family matters and we have a, a huge black audience. We have a huge Hispanic audience. We obviously have just a big non-white audience. You know, not everybody on our show should be white. So they knew they wanted to give me a girlfriend, but that's the definition of tokenism, right? Like, let's find a token, right. you know, somebody or other to plug in there. And, um, you know, it just ended up, they, they read a bunch of, uh, you know, any ethnicity. And this is what my wife deals with all the time, you know. My wife grew up Italian and Puerto Rican, and she identified more Italian growing up just because she grew up in Staten Island in a more Italian community. So it wasn't until she, you know, she doesn't speak Spanish. Um, her dad is Puerto Rican, but didn't teach her Spanish. It wasn't until she moved to L.A. to become an actress at the age of 22 that suddenly it was like, oh, you're Mexican. Everything you do is Mexican. <laughs> Just be a Mexican and you're going to be a prostitute in this episode. You're going to be a maid in this episode. You're always the criminal. You're all. And she was just like, okay, I guess I'm a Latina. I didn't even, I didn't identify as a Latina my entire life. But suddenly she was embraced in, you know, Hollywood as part of, you know, at that time, this was in the 90s, that was the Latina craze that was happening. Everybody, you know, they wanted the next Jennifer Lopez that was like, oh, that's the new thing. And, she was always Mexican. She still is to this day. She always plays Mexicans. <laughs> She's always an Anna or you know Maria. Wasn't she? Uh, wasn't she Cuban and Justified? Yeah, she was Cuban and Justified. <laughs> Had to do a, a Cuban accent. I think. I, I think her line was like, "Diego will feed you to the alligators." Oh, God. <laughs> she hated having to say that shit. But you know, this is what she has to do. This is how you make a living right. if you're an ethnicity in this town. It's you know, it's depressing. But well, it's and I think the the book I think really goes into sort of the craven nature of Hollywood also. And it, it, it on all sides of it, you know, they, there's the, the whole bit about how Dr. Doolittle became nominated for an Academy Award, which was basically on the back of free dinners in Champagne. They bought it. It's crazy. Uh, they bought it. Um, but, I mean, that's it's not that different than than how a lot of films get nominated for things in, in different categories now, mm -hmm. too. When you watch the Academy Awards and you see the hosts make fun of Harvey Weinstein for, you know, getting a film to be nominated for Best Picture, it's not through shaking hands, you right. know? So or can we just say, if you actually watch The Revenant, would you really think Leonardo DiCaprio uh, deserved it? No, uh, it's a publicity campaign no. that's like, he no. was so cold, it was horrible. It's like, okay, he deserves did not it. Like, it's like, I did what? not like The Revenant. <laughs> well, I did not... I, I saw the revenue with my father-in-law, hmm. so it was it was just a whole series of <laughs> mistakes just along the way. Not a great night. <laughs> not a great night. <laughs> Sorry, oh, go ahead, Julia. Oh, what was I going to say? Oh, back to the idea of ranking things. I mean, I think that obviously it's human nature to want to make a list and rank and choose the best and do these superlatives, but in reality, and this is what this book is all about, is like all five represent a moment in American culture. You know, like we can't have the yeah. rise of the new wave stuff until you experience this like atrocious death of the Rex Harrison style. You know what I mean? Oh, so nice. they feed right. each other. They're not isolated. It's not like all five movies are trying to do the same thing. Um, right. And so the the choosing of the best is is pointless because they're they're hmm. so symbiotic in how they behave. Yeah. Um, I do want to state for a second 
that this book is extremely well written. We have not talked about that at all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's and incredibly well researched too. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Yes. But every paragraph is like so filled with information, but then always with like a nugget of entertainment in there. You know, there's always yeah. like so many names, and yet you you get through it. Like there's so much names and so many names and so much information, and yet it's you get through it and you're excited to read the next page it's like constantly like oh there's a little yeah i love it well here's here's just a little snippet uh i just opened this up at random but i remember reading this paragraph anyway so this is just uh, a paragraph for producing and directing guess who's coming to dinner stanley kramer would be paid five hundred thousand dollars when spencer tracy's health worsened suddenly in 1967 kramer agreed to defer that payment until completion of principal photography it was money he needed badly, since the years of financial failures in the 1960s had affected him personally. Kramer's net worth at the end of 1966 was just over $100,000. His gesture did save the film, but it made a less vivid anecdote than the story of Catherine Hepburn taking his suggestion and making a gallant last-minute sacrifice, when in fact the deferral of her salary was a pragmatic business decision she had made on her own months earlier. It was an impression Hepburn herself never chose mm -hmm. to correct. Yeah. So this is a paragraph about... A, a contract yeah <laughs> but it is about human beings and egos yeah and um publicity and yeah. all these other things all wrapped up in a contract so you know like they say in the godfather you know it's personal it actually is personal yeah. because these are people's egos uh, at work here it's not just business yeah. in the godfather um and it should be noted, The Godfather was only possible because of this movement, <laughs> the films that were made in, in this book. Yeah. Because Godfather came out in 72. Um, it, it, without, uh, and I can't overstate this, without, um, without Bonnie and Clyde specifically, there's no Quentin Tarantino. Um, there's no uh, Elmore Leonard, not in the way that he became. Um, it, it had just a huge influence on books, on TV, and film. The idea of bad guys that are super violent as compelling romantic leads right. as fundamentally changed after yeah. Bonnie yeah. and Clyde. Yeah. But of course, the, the fascinating thing that I didn't know was that Clyde Barrow apparently was gay. And they bisexual. stripped all yeah. of that out. Bisexual. Yeah. They stripped all of that out. Um, in the movie and replaced it with impotency you know, for <laughs> yes so interesting it's kind of a weird twist <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah the book is enormously well written extraordinarily entertaining it's the kind of book that um you could just pick up and read anytime if you want to because you could literally skip around at yeah. some points if you I want to because every every chapter is is Stands alone. I want Mark Harris or somebody to do this for every year of the Academy Awards. Oh my <laughs> like, God. You could, yeah. no, I mean, but I mean, like, uh, even if it wasn't this long, like, if you put out like a, a hundred page book every year that described the history of production for like mm -hmm. even this year's nominees, like, I would love to read about every one of the, and why each movie got made and how the publicity department dealt with it and what was going on at the studio at the time and how, I mean, like, it's, fascinating you learn so much about filmmaking and obviously i'm in the thick of it so this is my industry and this is it's not only you know fun it's also helping my career i think to have this kind of information but i think even if it was like a 15 page pamphlet that just sort of described like a little bit about each movie and what it's gone through you could do that for every 
maybe even every decade. Like, what if they just went 77 next well, or 87? Well, it should be noted, Mark, Mark Harris wrote another book called Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War, right. uh, where he looked at five major Hollywood directors, John Ford, George Stevens, John Huston, William Wyler, and Frank Capra, and how their films changed World War II. Now I gotta, gotta read that next. Oh, man. It's, uh, it's probably 900 pages <laughs> long. Yeah. But he wrote it after this book. Yeah, it's 528 pages long. It came out in uh, 2015. Uh, so apparently he's the guy who's actually doing that. He's writing these books. Well, it is absolutely fascinating. And you know what's sort of uh, interesting uh, as well is you would have never have guessed that he's a columnist at Entertainment Weekly, which Entertainment Weekly is a, a fine magazine, but it's not exactly in-depth journalism. This guy is a great journalist. Yeah. An amazing yeah. journalist. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. A tremendously gifted researcher and he must have interviewed every person that was alive <laughs> oh yeah he lists them at the back it's crazy god yeah i mean that it, it must have taken him a really long time to write this book uh oh he, and according to the english version uh he's a bloody good writer oh well he sure <laughs> no, is that's not true oh wow Hey, look at this! I didn't, I didn't see this part. He is, uh, he is the partner of uh, the playwright Tony Kushner. Now that's a talented household. Jesus. Jesus, I didn't know that either. Wow. That, that is a, uh, that's a household of really super talented wow. writers. Jesus. Kushner spoke at my, um, my graduation. Really cool. I, uh, I interviewed Kushner on a stage once. He was lovely. Wow. I'm not a huge fan of his work, though. I have to say. Oh just gonna throw that out there weirdly when i interviewed him he was like i have to tell you a bit about my favorite horror movie <laughs> <laughs> he's not a fan of mine <laughs> my hey, favorite uh, kids show from the 90s <laughs> hey before uh before we get done with this episode since we're talking about movies Ryder, tell us about this movie you have coming out Oh, that's true. Um, I'm in a movie called Too Late uh, that stars John Hawks, and uh, it's coming out in L.A. March 18th, and then it'll be rolled out every like week or two in a different city. And we're eventually going to end up, I think, in about 20 different cities, so check uh, toolatemovie.com and uh, find out when it's playing near you. It's only going to be screened in 35mm. It's a film shot um, entirely on 35mm, uh, in five one-shot scenes, which uh, is a pretty complicated, <laughs> crazy, ambitious thing. It's like if everyone saw Birdman, you know, you know, Birdman was the conceit of one shot, but it was done digitally. So if you made a mistake, it didn't cost the film as much, and it wasn't as big of a deal. This is kind of more old school, and uh, yeah, if you like, I would say if you like '70s cinema, if you have any appreciation for like Tarantino or that kind of stuff, it's a detective story. Um, it's uh, it's pretty ambitious. It's pretty crazy, and I've been involved with it for a long time. Not only because I um, acted in it and my friend wrote wrote it, uh, but uh, my wife produced it. And producing this film is one of the, like the, it's it's a very difficult film to produce, and she pulled it off. So I'm very very proud of her. I'm way more proud of her and this movie than I am in, about my own performance because I have a pretty small part in the movie. But um, it's a really cool film, and if you're if you know about like Fantastic Fest or you like those sort of genre films, um, this is right up your alley. It's, it's really fun. Cool. So how many theaters nationally have the 35 millimeter capability? Like, is, Not is that many anymore. Cities? That's what's been crazy. It's like, you know, I mean, Tarantino went through this when he was just releasing his 70 millimeter film. It was like he had to, you know, make sure that there were projectors in some cities. 
Uh, but even 35 is having a hard time. Yeah. That's a, the story of making this movie too late. It's been almost four years making this movie um, because it, it had so many setbacks. And uh, most of them were in, were because of the, the problems with shooting on film these days. It's just hard. <laughs> unless, you know, unless there's a few directors that still only shoot on film, Tarantino being one of them, Christopher Nolan. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of holdouts um, who believe that there's something magical and special about film. But these are all guys that have studios backing them with hundreds of millions of dollars. We were an independent film, entirely independently financed, um, entirely independently distributed. Um, and it's been, you know, it's, it's been an uphill battle. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had a front row seat because it's in my house. My wife's been producing it. Um, and it's, 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 it's a fascinating glimpse at the death of, of film itself. And the movie, it's actually encoded within the film it, it, it has a lot of commentary on that because it references a lot of the genres. It plays homage to a lot of gangster films and 70s films. Um, and then there's even, you know, there's even projectors and films being projected live uh, within the movie, uh, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But you have to figure if you're doing a 20 minute take, um, you have to project there. There's a scene. There's a 20 minute take with a boxing match, uh, gunfights. And three different films being projected, one of which is a flashback that a character is having, and that had to be an actual live projection. So there's no trickery in the film. It's it's a pretty crazy process. Um, and, and, cool. and these are things that you could have manipulated if you had done it. Oh, of course. Digital, but yeah. this is just a. It, well, that's why right. when, when we were you know we were still making this movie when Birdman came out, and there was a sense of like, oh yeah, Birdman kind of did the same thing we we're doing, but it's kind of a cheat too like what we're doing is much more hardcore than that um, it was like when uh, boyhood came out and uh, julie and i were ranting and raving about how great boyhood was and you're like yeah you know what they that's called that's called making a tv show <laughs> <laughs> we aged with the show yeah. did you ever see somebody actually cut a, a cut of boy meets world to <laughs> yeah. the theme song from yeah no, somebody posted awesome. that and tweeted tweeted it was hysterical that because I had just made that comment on here and then somebody tweeted like a, a cut of Boy Meets World clips to the, the Boyhood song. Hilarious. I uh, I thought I saw a picture from the movie though where you're wearing a tank top. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a pretty sleazy guy in this movie. It's uh, a tank top guy. Did, Say no more. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh. I mean. That's a choice. I mean, you've made choices, and now you have to live with them on screen. Oh, and you watch the movie. My choice was, I said, this is because I'm like the sleazy drug dealer who's like, you know, when you first meet me, I've been dealing drugs all night, and now I'm out in a park, like, trying to pick up ladies with, like, offering them ecstasy. And, uh, and he's just a horrible scumbag, racist, awful <laughs> person. And uh, I was like, you know, this is the kind of guy who thinks that, like, Johnny Depp 1992 was really cool. So I was like... <laughs> That's that's his that's what I told the wardrobe department. I was like, I just want to dress like Johnny Depp, like bad Johnny Depp, nineteen ninety two. So they like found this like cheesy hat, and then we like had a little bullet necklace, and you know, and then I was like, and then I just my my only instruction like throughout the whole scene, I was like, I just want to try and be grabbing my crotch every chance I get. But I'm you know, he's one of those guys, <laughs> always wants to be touching himself, but it's like holding back. So that's a little that's a little inside oh, wow, acting deep. for you watching the movie. <laughs> So oh, you're fun. you're basically Johnny Depp meets Skeet Ulrich in a, in a park. Oh, exactly. In a, Great. Skeet. Great. That is exactly what I was thinking. It's really, it's fun. It was so much fun to play. Yeah, because my buddy Dennis Howe, who directed the film, wrote it for me. And I was like, really? He went, okay. You know, he we, we've known each other for years, and he just wanted to have fun. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Can't wait. 
Julia, are you I, looking forward to seeing it? Of course. In fact, I was thinking yeah. of coming back. <laughs> wow. Jesus. <laughs> nah, I don't really like Skeet Ulrich or Johnny Depp. <laughs> or Ryder Strong. Jesus. Yeah. I'm not a big Ryder Strong fan. <laughs> of course I'm excited to see it. Oh. All right. You're going to have to wait till uh, your city finds a 35 millimeter. Uh, uh, it'll be in It'll projector. be in New York. I'll just go down to New York. I'm so close. Right. Easy peasy. Right. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, the great British nonfiction book, <laughs> Scenes, Scenes from, from a Revolution. Revolution, also known in America as Pictures. From That's a the one you guys in the should colonies. buy. Of a revolution. In the yeah. colonies is Pictures at a Revolution. At a re- oh god. Yeah. Pictures again. at Jesus. a Revolution. Don't but don't worry me. about that. People people want the British version because it also involves the struggle of migration of the British people coming Not over true. the water. Not true. Um, by the lovely Mark Harris. No